Welcome to the Translate Your Doctor podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Figures, joined as always by my friend and co-host, Dr. Trey Sertish. And today we have a wonderful conversation with Dr. Michelle McClelland, who you may remember we had on season one of the podcast. She practices family medicine, uh, general practice in the Pacific Northwest. She uh, went to residency training with uh, Dr. Sertish, with Trey. And we had her on originally to talk about uh, some of the topics we were covering around physician incentives and what incentivizes physicians to provide good care for patients. And that led us into a discussion about uh, fee-for-service medicine and providing good education and why patients don't get adequate education. And, and she provided Trey and I some great discussion and, and some counterfactuals around the really great education that she's able to provide her patients up in the Pacific Northwest. So we just had a, a overall uh, very wide-ranging and very rich discussion with Michelle, and Trey and I were excited to revisit that with her. So without further ado, we're going to jump into our conversation with Dr. Michelle McClelland. Michelle, Dr. McClelland, thank you so much for joining Trey and I again for what feels like a follow-up chat, a part two from our discussion a, a couple months ago on, well, this time this time around, it's what's right in healthcare, what's working in, he- in healthcare, and just generally a follow-up with you, because we had such a wonderful discussion last time we talked, so thank you. No problem. Happy to be here. So just jumping right in, what's it like to be uh, Dr. Michelle McClelland right now? What What's it been like? I don't know if things are winding down in, <clears throat> in Seattle. There's a heat thing that was happening that might still be happening, so there's a lot of that going on, and then whatever is going on up in the Pacific Northwest with COVID. So just broadly, what's the state of the Dr. Michelle McClelland? Well, and just so, you know, we're talking about the right places. I'm about two and a half hours south of Seattle. So I'm actually closer to Portland. But that being said, COVID-wise, Seattle was the first major city to hit 70% vaccination rates. So we actually had really good response there in the larger cities. Some of the smaller cities were still kind of struggling behind. I'm sure some people know this, but the Pacific Northwest is the home of a lot of people who enjoy natural remedies to things. And so we're also one of the only sites in the U.S. that has had a measles outbreak due to lack of vaccinations and things like that. So we are struggling a little bit with vaccination rates in that regard. That being said, we're also struggling with vaccination rates in our minority and indigenous populations, our underserved populations. And so that's that's been heavy, too, just in the face of everything going on with indigenous communities, kind of recognizing their fear of large institutions and then having to overcome that and still get them to get the COVID vaccine. So it's been a big learning experience as a primary care physician and kind of how to have some of those conversations. I think we were already having those conversations, but this is a new vaccine and people are hesitant and things are changing so quickly and they're just they're I, I understand it if I didn't have healthcare training I'd be nervous too so yeah it's part of why you're there right to help bridge that gap for for patients you're, you're the yeah. you're the adult in the room so to speak but yeah education is probably the primary purpose of of primary care so that's mm. what that's something I believe in heavy I love that as a that's a great way to to frame it as you think about I call it winding down. I, I call it sort of transitioning out of. I, I, I'm sure I'm not using the right terms as we talk about like getting through the pandemic and feeling like we're sort of mentally and emotionally getting to the other 
side of what's coming to mind for you in terms of things that you're thankful for, things that are on your mind in terms of what, what you feel like went right. We, we, Trey and I spent a lot of time talking about what, what went wrong and what didn't work in healthcare that we're really trying to have a more positive and uh, just take a silver lining spin on, on what we're feeling optimistic about. Anything that you're feeling optimistic about or, or positive about coming off of what's been a tough 18 months? Yeah. Well, looking back, I think I'm very thankful that I was in a state that took things very seriously. I worked for an organization that took things very seriously. I volunteer. I don't know if I told you guys this, but I volunteered to be a hospitalist if they if the numbers reached a certain point. I would have been called from the clinic setting back to the hospital setting, and so there were those moments which my wife probably would have killed me. But like, I went and got my will done. And I went and got my power of attorney done because you just, we didn't know at the beginning. And, and that obviously led to some stress at home. Just like, why are you getting your will done? Why are you volunteering for this? It felt good to be part of the team. My job changed a lot. There was a lot of change involved in primary care and all, I mean, Trey, your job changed a ton too during COVID. So I know that that's not isolated to primary care, but just Going from, I mean, seeing patients, 20, 21 and 22 patients a day, four days a week to all of a sudden, all of our slots are held. We're not seeing anybody. It's all virtual care, if anything. It was just such a drastic change. So I'm really enjoying getting back to seeing patients in person, putting hands on people. I was really worried for a little while there. And and these fears are well-founded that about missed diagnoses or late diagnoses, but I'm happy to know that really the, the bigger thing that I'm doing right now is supporting patients' mental health as they transition out from feeling scared all the time or feeling isolated all the time to feeling like they can integrate a little bit more. So that's fun. And um, personally, just getting back out there and I, I was very hard on myself and my wife was very hard on herself about being around people. Even after we were vaccinated, I just didn't know if we're still carriers and do I carry that home to my family or do I carry it to my job where I see 20 people over 75 every day? And so just those safety measures we were taking on ourselves, we've been able to take off a little bit. So that's been, that's all been fun. That's great. Yeah. I don't know if that answers your question, but it always, it always does. It answers like what was behind my question, which is wonderful. I feel like you can see past whatever words I'm saying to like the heart to what I'm trying to get at. It's beautiful. I, I love it. You, Patrick. That's, I we, you. you and I've always had this soul connection. I love it. One of the things that what you shared reminds me of is that one of my other physician friends, who's the medical director of the practice I used to work at, commented on how one of his silver linings for COVID when he and I talked about this was he felt more connected with his patients through COVID because he felt like his patients were paying extra special attention and care and valuing the relationship that they had with their doctor because there was so much heightened anxiety, there was so much uncertainty, and it felt like patients were leaning on that relationship more, especially COVID-related things, obviously, but because it was so difficult to get access to care, you couldn't just walk into an urgent care and get care if you had a, a symptomatic illness. I don't know how to how to phrase it, but if you had like anything that that involved like the lungs, a cough, sneezing, it was difficult to get care. It was hard to find a provider that that could see you for a stretch there. But the PCPs that had ongoing relationships really went out of their way to try to make themselves available to their patients and really felt reconnected with their purpose 
purpose in that way because I think deep yeah. down what I know Trey feels, what I think you feel is you got into medicine not just because it would be a fun and exciting profession, but because you deep down feel like it's your purpose to help people. So I'm not yeah. sure if that, it, it, I'd love to hear your response or reaction to that. I mean, I, I think you hit it head on. I mean, I would say, I, I don't know how many, but I can't put a number to it, but a good portion of people who go into medicine of at all levels really are there to help people. But that's, that's our goal. We want to make people feel better. Ideally, we want to make people healthier, not just treat what's wrong. And the thing about COVID is that we didn't have a treatment. And, and to be frank, for those who have the long haulers, we still don't really have treatments for them. It's just kind of waiting. But yeah, like I said, volunteering made you feel like part of the team. And by the team, I don't mean my local team or my clinic team. I mean, like, healthcare as a, as a purpose, as a, as a journey in and of itself. I, I wanted to be part of the group who felt such camaraderie. And I feel that way about residency. Like, I don't know that I'll ever have friendships like I had in residency because mm -hmm. you're such a team that goes through a specific thing together. And that's kind of how it felt being in healthcare through, through COVID is, no one is ever going to know how we feel or what we see mm. like other people who are going through what we're feeling and what we're seeing. And there's something really special about that. Although I wish it didn't come at such a cost. Yeah. Hmm. That's great. I appreciate that. Trey, anything you'd, you'd add on or reflect on with regards to this feeling more connected with patients? Is that something you saw on the inpatient side or, or that you reflect on in terms of these past 18 months? Did you feel like it was, it was different in terms of the care that patients were we're taking with how they uh, engaged with you? I would say yes. Like I was talking with one of our nurse practitioners who then moved to one of the ambulatory settings. And so more of an administrative role and we just ran into each other today and I hadn't seen her for a while. I said, like, oh, how things going? And she's like, oh, great, I'm back. I like working here. And I was like, oh, wow. So she, she turns out she was remote for the whole uh, time. And I was like, interesting that we, we go through the whole rigmarole that everyone in this country has talked about, which is like, how did that go? And so on. But she asked me and I was like, well, my job was not much different, like because I kept doing the thing that I was doing, the pandemic, a burden. So which I think is very unique to hospital medicine, very unique to emergency medicine, very unique to pulmonary medicine because and, and and depending on who you were in the group is not everyone volunteered to take care of people and you were describing that too michelle and so I, I think it just i don't know like it felt like the setting didn't change very much other than the kind of cast of characters like who you who are you taking care of obviously became grossly weighted in one direction as to how patients like felt how, how did I perceive patients? I mean, I felt, and I can't compare it because I wasn't in an inventory setting at the time, but it felt like the anxiety was so acute for those who were in the hospital, particularly if you had something that was, like you say, Patrick, adjacent to COVID in terms of symptoms. So if you, God help the people, I mean, I only saw one case of flu, which was, again, speaks to the power of masking. But God help you if you had flu or any other kind of uh, upper respiratory tract infection that got complicated enough to be in the hospital because those patients, I mean, they just like didn't believe their tests early on, didn't 
we didn't believe their tests early on, largely speaking. And so I don't know. I feel like that's what magnified it. And then, of course, as I think many people have read or heard about in Michelle, you've touched a bit missed and late, maybe not as much perceiving them, perhaps that speaks to the success of your practice as well as Kaiser. But I mean, I work at an institution where, I mean, the, the underserved, underserved is a nice way of putting it. And there were horrific diagnoses of people coming in far too late with far too long disease. And so that was, that was a big challenge. So I, I don't think I'm really staying along unified answer so my apologies for that but yeah i reflect on how my job largely it changed dramatically but not in the day-to-day which was unusual that was unusual like i'm still going to work i'm still like in doing stuff and the roads are dead and like nobody's out and and that was just very strange. everybody's talking about virtual care or again like the few doctors we don't talk about like not just refusing to see people and we're, we're trying to be positive i know but that was a reality and then patients just patients trying to deal with the vortex of emotions and yeah it was, it was fascinating and i don't know i reflect on that often but less every day hmm that's great i don't I know if that <laughs> yeah that's very thoughtful i appreciate that i appreciate that michelle one of the things that trey and i talked about uh, last week was this idea of post-COVID, because there were so many different changes that we had to make, so many different things. But COVID moved virtual forward years, right? One of those things that's just different in a way that, that won't be the same. So there was this concept that I described of like some things are snapping back in the way that back to normal, and then some things lo have lost their elasticity. There's no snapback. Some things are just different. This virtual world, I think a positive coming out of it, most people feel comfortable dropping into a Zoom meeting in a way that they, they didn't feel comfortable 20, even 24 months ago, even 18 months ago, it would have been weird. All of our, the practice that I managed, all of our meetings used to be in person. We'd cram 40 people into an in-person room at once a month to do our practice meetings. And then they went virtual. And I don't think they're ever going to go back from <laughs> being virtual because it was just so much easier for people to be at home and to plug into the group, the, the provider meeting once a month virtually uh, instead. So I'm curious if there's anything that you've seen outside of, or, or feel free to, to, to wax on the virtual changes, anything that feels different, that you're approaching differently, that you feel like is, is something that's, that's interesting, that's changing or has changed as you look, look ahead. Yeah, I think you're right. We have an all provider meeting and we have a once a week module huddle. And I don't think either of those are ever going to go back to <laughs> in person. <laughs> I just don't. But I will say the, the thing that's come from that is there's a much bigger push from a lot of the physicians in my group saying we want to do an in-person social event. We mm, want to get mm -hmm. together. We want to see each other. Another really super positive thing that's come out of this for us is I don't know why we didn't have this before, but we use Teams to communicate with MAs and things. I'm sure most docs will know what I'm talking about. We made an all provider chat, like a single <laughs> chat that has everybody on it. And it is the funniest thing I've <laughs> ever been a part of. And it makes, I mean, on at least once a week, someone on the chat says, 
my favorite thing about COVID is this virtual chat. We tease each mm. other, we we play games, we post memes. And at the same time, if you have an urgent question or if you're new and you don't know who you're supposed to refer to for X, Y, and Z, or do we have an RN who does the OPD management? Like we can just answer each other like that. And it's so nice, it's so nice. I'm also at a clinic where both our clinic director and our regional director are in our clinic. And so they're in that group chat. Mm. So if we have a big question or if we, maybe if we start getting a little too catty about something that we don't like, all of a sudden this chat will pop up from our regional director that says, guys, that's not how that's working. Here's the latest <laughs> update. And, mm. and it's all, we all know it's all in good fun. And so no one ever gets upset, but it's, it's turned into this like really wonderful way that all of us as providers communicate and stay engaged. And we didn't have that before. I mean, I told Lila, I miss, Lila's mm -hmm. my wife for anyone watching. Mm -hmm. I told Lila that I miss being in the hospital setting because you go floor to floor, you talk to every nurse, you talk mm -hmm. to every respir respiratory therapist, you, you have all of this person on person engagement. And then while you're there, you also see the patients. And it's like, when you're in ambulatory, you go from your office, to the patient room and back to your office if you're lucky. Normally you go from your office at 8 a.m. patient room to patient room to patient room to patient room to patient room and then you go to lunch, maybe. And I miss that, I miss that engagement. So that's been a really great thing um, about it. That's I forgot great. the original question. Actually. That's okay, that's okay, you answered it. You answered it, it was, uh, you know, what feels like it's different? What feels like it's changed oh, and okay. it's not uh, going back? And that's certainly one the yeah. the ease of which you're connecting with your peers as as yeah. one thing yeah i'll say another thing that's changed a lot that i don't i mean i think it's probably mostly good but patients hate it is we're getting people into specialty care faster because specialty care has more virtual appointments but patients don't quite understand why they can't go see their cardiologist or their and so yeah. Uh, we're getting a little bit of pushback from that, but I kind of joke like, okay, lung doctors. Yeah. Maybe you need to see them in person, but like, what's your endocrinologist going to look for? Right. You've already had your thyroid ultrasound and all your right. labs done. Like right. you right. don't need it. So yeah. I don't know. So there's been some movement towards that too. Especially in your area. Cause you, you've got a rural footprint out there. I would think that the, the ability for a virtual option, like I'm very bullish on virtual care in general, but I'm especially bullish for rural areas. Now, yeah. obviously bandwidth's an issue. Not everyone has internet, et cetera, et cetera. But most people have a cell phone that, that can get a cell connection and you can do a video visit or something off a cell connection. And the ability, especially in a state like Texas or the part of Washington that you're in, the ability to not need to go to the one, you know, endocrinologist that you might have. And maybe there are lots of endocrinologists, but maybe there are not a lot of endocrinologists that have availability in the next yeah. 30 days to get a new patient in or pick whatever specialty. Because that's something I've actually seen a lot more often is, and I haven't thought about it, it's, oh, sure, we have a lot of specialists. Specialists with new appointment slots in the next three weeks. Oh, we don't have that many specialists with new appointment slots in the next three weeks. Those are actually yeah. surprisingly rare. Yeah. Well, and I'll tell you this, where where I work, how am I going to say this? I, I find it both a positive and sometimes a negative. So we'll just start with this. But where I work, there's a lot of pushback on referral to specialty care. And so we have a lot of resources that have been developed to 
help people know what should be done before someone sees a specialist. I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that we do hire, I don't think the correct term anymore is mid-levels, but we- Advanced you know, practitioners, a, extenders. Yeah, we have, a, we have a lot of people who are in that range. And so my, my organization is super big on reviewing data, like the Epic data, the referral data, they, they go over it all the time. And so consistently what we see are inappropriate referrals or referrals that are done too early or things like that. And so they are very like, they'll block a referral. You haven't tried protonics twice a day for four weeks. So get on that, you know? And then, so there's a little bit of pushback there. I don't find it that hard because I find it more like guidance. I don't, if I can do it, I don't need you to go see the GI. And if I just want an EGD, you don't need to go talk to the GI. You can just schedule it. So. So I feel like for me, that gives me a lot more control, but my point was going to be one thing that Kaiser did beforehand, but that I'm using like crazy is we always, always, always have an on-call specialty care. There's an on-call cardiologist. There's an on-call EP. There's an on-call endocrine. There's an on-call psych, ortho, et cetera. And so if I have a problem and I can't get a patient in, in the next month, and I know this can't wait. I can call the on-call guy and they'll figure it out. And of course they figure it out. And if that appointment is three weeks away, but in the next week and a half, I can order five different things that I hadn't thought of. It's, it's very helpful. And so I think that that goes back to feeling more capable of using that virtual connection to connect yourself to other specialty care providers who on their end it's their job to answer that phone and give you advice in the moment. We've built a space for that. And so because that exists, it eliminates a lot of excess referrals that are unnecessary. And so I think that's, I think we, like I said, we had that before COVID, but I 100% have used that probably twice as much during the COVID times because there weren't appointments or no one wants to travel. They definitely don't want to go from my small town to downtown Portland where the numbers are exploding. So that's been really helpful as well. That's great. I appreciate that. And it's, I always love talking to you because there's such a difference in culture between most of the providers I work with don't have the depth of resources that you have. So it's two very different cultures, right? You, you have on one end of the spectrum, you have the challenge of, I don't have a lot of resources, so I have to make what I have stretch. And on the other end, it's, I have such an abundance of wonderful resources. And sometimes all those resources can feel maybe a little bit like a straight jacket, like maybe a little bit like they're crowding in on me. And I, I love that that juxtaposition and that and that balance between, between the two. Because I think that as a segue into our next topic, I think the sh there's a shadow with both of those things, right? Where there's a limit on when there's limits on your autonomy i think it's easier to feel like you're on the hamster wheel right that that hamster wheel that everyone talks about of, of fee-for-service medicine or, or any of these incentives we had a, a beautiful debate about this last time michelle with regards to like why why do you have to see 20 patients a day what's the right number obviously in a fee-for-service model there's a, there's a certain incentive but even though you're not in a fee-for-service model there are different incentives that are that, are, that challenge you to try to do the most that you can for the most patients that you that you can and in a model with a lot of resources that limitation and that straight jacketing that can happen can be really challenging and stressful i imagine and then on the opposite end with my doctors, because they didn't have resources, that was the thing that stretched them, feeling like I've got to be everything to this patient. I can't trust anyone to do anything. I need to give this patient my cell number. If they call me on a Saturday, I need to be available to them. That's kind of an exaggeration, but those are the sorts of feelings 
that my doctors would would feel leading to this feeling of burnout. And I, I enjoy talking about burnout and I'm also like tired of hearing about burnout because it's one of these discussions that like never seems to go anywhere. It's like burnout is bad. End of discussion. Like everyone's like, yes, yeah. it is. It's so terrible. So, so challenging. And it was- I'm oh, sorry, please, I was gonna please? say, or it resu was results in conversations like, oh, you just need to do yoga and meditate more, <laughs> which just puts the work back on the overworked physician. Right. So. Yeah, I definitely understand that. Yeah, be beautifully put. I think we touched on that this last time, which is, and I like that frame. We're very, it's very difficult to talk about the structural issues that lead to burned out physicians. And it's, there's so much a race to the bottom on these topics. It reminds me of, of the really messy topic that I'm sure both of you have a perspective on with regards to fixing physician training, right? Physician training in this country is inherently harmful. It's like, and I won't put you on the spot. My perspective is it seems inherently harmful. It seems violence to the average physician. And the only way to effectively train a physician is to put them through the regimen of training that we put them through. And so you have these two ideas that both seem to be true. And I don't know how, how they both can live together, which is the way that we train physicians is violence and it's the only way to effectively teach people to not kill people and to be great physicians. So, so challenging. Yes. Yes. And we could talk endlessly. We've talked a lot about this, Patrick. And I think with the more that I consider it, particularly hearing Michelle's story and her challenges when she, I forget if that was off air or not, but just the first year of attending ship is very challenging. Transition points are very challenging. Moving from medical school to internship, internship to junior and senior residency, and then residency to either fellowship or subsequently attending ship. And all of those transition points are very challenging. I think that that exists throughout much of life. However, what doesn't exist, I think, for many different professions is that what does the learning curve look like and what are the stakes and what is the support? I think that we can't solve the learning curve. We can only, and this is what I focus on so much now when I'm teaching learners, whether they're foundational medical students to advanced medical students to various interns and residents, is that have a system to accommodate the knowledge and to deal with the learning curve because the learning curve is only going to get steeper. And so you're going to have to get comfortable with ignorance and you're going to have to get comfortable with recognizing there's a lot of unknown unknowns and there's mm. nothing you can do about that other than deal with your biases, like your cognitive biases and create a framework to incorporate more information. So that is, that is a relatively simple a solution, even though it's complex and energetically dense. So then the second thing is like, okay, well, like, what are the stakes? Stakes are high, depends on what you do, and how you negotiate for your job, which you don't get any support with, which we'll talk about. And then the third thing is, what is your support when you make that transition? And a lot of people are like, oh, well, I'm married, or I have my family or my friends and stuff. But that was like, no, 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 they don't understand what it's like to be a physician as much as they love you. Patrick, you and I, I don't think could be any closer. I don't think you get what, what I do on a day-to-day -day basis. What likely Michelle does. I don't think I get what Michelle does on a day-to-day -day basis and vice versa. I think that you really need that, that text chain that Michelle that you're talking about. And that's not enough. That's not sufficient. But what I mean is like a peer network who is faced with the same stressors and is able to say, recognize when you make that transition, 
and be like, Michelle, I recognize that you're struggling or, or anyone, Trey, I recognize you're struggling with this transition. And here are some tips because again, the learning curve, we can't change the stakes. We can't change, but we can change how we support people who are making that transition and we can support them continually and develop in their career. And so I think a ton about this, especially now that I've started, so Michelle, I've started this clinical coaching program through the institution that I met. And this is the thing I think about all the time, particularly when it comes to faculty development. You talk about medical student and resident development, which is very important, but faculty development is extremely important because I think that that's where a lot of the unhappiness that's exerted upon those lower in the totem pole comes from because I witness it myself. I watch teams who have a poisonous leader really make that those other people lower on the temple suffer and because again they can't deal with the learning curve which is already stressed enough they can't deal with the stakes those can't be controlled for necessarily so man that extra third thing just really kills them and then i've seen excellent leaders i'm sure you have too and i'm sure you represent one of those people and it makes it and the team feels great and the team feels like they're having a great time and you're like well how much did i work this week well i worked 85 hours i worked a lot and the learning curve was still just as steep and the stakes were just as high yet i feel better why do I feel better? Because of the support that I get. And that is intangible. And I think that is what is scary and hard to standardize, which is why burnout still persists because the learning curve and the stakes can't be dealt with. And every physician who enters the field will have to deal with those, but not every physician will have that support. So I know that was a long answer, yeah, but yeah, I think a lot it, about that. That's that was beautiful. Yeah, that's wonderful. So the article that I sent uh, in advance that I stumbled upon, which made me think about Michelle because we had mm -hmm. such a wonderful discussion with her last time, it's titled, The Doctors Are Not All Right. The subheadline is, Doctors Need Mental Health Support, But the Medical Profession Often Punishes Them For Getting It, which I thought the subheading was just a beautiful subheading because it echoes, I think, a lot of the challenges that you talk about, Trey, which uh, I'll give my perspective on it, which is there are, are two distinct challenges that there's a there's an element of hazing in the in this profession where there's an expectation of suffering that that is it, that mm -hmm. you are expected to suffer and that that is that is um that is something that in some ways you're supposed to wear with pride right like it's not just that i worked an 85 hour week it's that to some extent i'm supposed to work an 85 hour week mm -hmm. and have the attitude of like thank you sir may I have another? That's one mm -hmm. distinct challenge that I've observed as an outsider. A second distinct challenge is that there's not an off switch. And mm -hmm. uh, Trey, you and I have talked about mm -hmm. how damaging it is to your uh, rotation when someone selfishly decides to call in sick or Get take pregnant. a day off. What's that? Get pregnant. Get for sure. Yeah, exactly. Get because married. the the way have that- dare Have a parent die. Yeah, yeah, the way that work is split uh, amongst the team. And so there's this there's this really toxic sub subculture, sub riptide almost, undercurrent of everyone no one is allowed to take off work, right? I don't I don't care. I don't care what's going on. You get we we're all in this together. We all need to pitch in together. So there's this there's this this it feels like as an outsider yes. this insidious sense of yes. i can't get off the ride the example that i think of um again is that it's and it just for the example there are four people on a raft the raft is clumsily made and they're each on the corners and they know that if you fall into the water like we're gonna die you can't we have no more energy we have no more food it's freezing water whatever you want to do for that make it dangerous and stuff and if one person falls off the whole raft like does this 
and it endangers everyone else. And that is the precariousness that many practices in many settings, almost all specialties suffer from, which is Michelle, I mean, the patient's gotta be seen, right? That's how, that's kind of the, that's the sense It's like patient's still there, patient's still gotta be seen. And if I call in sick, my partners have to see all my patients and which again, I like that you said, Patrick, I don't, I can't remember your exact word, but it's kind of, it can be perverted because it's very, it, that's the professional aspect. You want your doctors to be professional. You want to instill a sense of professionalism and duty for your patients. You have to do it. But like you're saying, it's the off switch. Where are your boundaries? And that's what I talk about with residents who are making that transition, fellows that are making that transition is like, you, what are your boundaries, man? Like, what are you going to do when you don't have a choice? For instance, well, I, I won't use this example, so it's too personal, but, but we'll talk off camera. But like, if you can't institute those boundaries, no one will for you unless you have the text chain, Michelle. Yeah. And again, I'm just using that as an example, but like people have- Well, and even then stuff. you can have all the peer support in the world and it doesn't change the fact that yeah. everyone is equally stressed so right. they're on that raft. I, you know? Yeah. Well, I, I'll tell you this. So mm. I'm going to go big for a second. <laughs> I am a big believer that a lot of our problems can be one, two, three times removed to the fact that mm. we need a not-for-profit healthcare system. Because half of the problem about who can you see and all these things is because we don't hire enough physicians because we don't make enough physicians because we don't have enough money to staff the clinic because we're trying not to staff the clinic because that saves us money. We're not paying people enough to bring them in. We're not paying for residency positions. That I, that's a very deep multifaceted part of it, the, the yeah. payment scheme. Yeah. But even in my facility where I'm not paid fee for service, we still don't have enough GI doctors. We still don't have enough primary care. I mean, granted i'm in a small town it's hard to hire in a small town so the whole time that i have worked at this clinic we have been at least five no i'm sorry at most five and a half full-time providers down mm -hmm. and at least just this year after hiring and hiring and hiring and hiring we're finally only two full-time providers down so like there's just so much to to what it is about that keeps us from being able to feel comfortable to flip the switch off when we need to, or to go have a baby or all these things that I think in the end, remove, remove, remove relates back to how we pay for our healthcare system. Yeah. 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 Also, Trey, I wanted to, I just want to quickly go back to something that you said, yeah. you were talking about the teams and how a poisonous mm -hmm. leader can poison the team. Let me just tell you, 100% believe that idea. I also believe that not everyone is designed to be a teacher yes. and that you need to yes. be able to recognize mm -hmm. that in yourself and remove yourself oh if you are God. not an appropriate teacher. I mean, if you Michelle, are not a good yes. teacher, you should not be in academia, oh, period. Oh my God, Michelle. Um, I mean, I just, I, I think about that all the time. Like, I, and I tell the seriousness to the learners. I was like, listen, you are going to reach uh, seniority just simply by not dying this year. Like mm -hmm. there are a few circumstances where you're going to be held back, like extremely rare circumstances. And mm -hmm. so by definition, if you make it another five, six, seven years, you're going to be top of the totem pole. And like, that is an enormous amount of responsibility. And like you say, Michelle, have some respect and dignity and self re reflection to be like, I can't be taken care of. I can't 
teach and educate and mentor and mm-hmm. guide and shape those behind me. But I, I, I think it just, we can talk a lot about this. I just think that depending on the institution, education is not always the primary motivation of academics. And that's its own conversation. And I'd love to have that conversation. Me but too. I absolutely agree 1000%. And I would even go to spread that, bring it back to what Patrick's talking about is like, what is contributing to burnout? Is that like, not everyone needs to do each thing that they find themselves doing, okay? Because you can find the internist who's as happy as a clam seeing 15 patients today. They just, it's just their, I, I don't know who that person is, but like, that, that's like, <laughs> you know what I mean? But, that, but they exist, right? We find them. And I think that specific to this article with these emergency physicians, I mean, it's just like, I, I look at them and I'm just like, how are you surprised? How are you surprised that you self-selected into a profession within medicine, a specialty within medicine that is just set up to fail? Mm. Because all the things that contribute to a sustainable career that give back to you are not monetary. Mm. They're not monetary. I mean, people should get paid more. You should probably get paid more. PCPs in general should get paid more. Right. And like that's, I think that most, if you ask most doctors, even like, should pay be paid more? And they're like, oh, yeah, for sure. That's crazy that they don't get paid enough. Like, so there's, there's, there's some, but there's a limit, right? You reach yeah. a point, money's not enough. And then it becomes other things. And it seems like the system is just like, well, we'll just pay Mercy Docs a lot, mm. you know, or we'll just shift their workout so they, they don't have calling home. And lo and behold, they're like miserable. They're miserable. And they're, and they're not the only ones, but like Patrick says, they just suck up all the oxygen because TV is what shows emergency medicine. And they, the public has a misconception of how care is actually delivered in this country. Yeah. So. When, if you look at the suicide rates in physicians, it's surgeons and anesthesiologists, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it's these things that you don't even see on TV or in the news, really. In fact, bringing it back to the article that mm-hmm. Patrick made us talk, made us read, made us, I mean, I mean one of the ladies, yes, recommended that we read prior to this meeting. One of the ladies that is mentioned, the Pamela Weibel, she is notorious in the field of physician support for mm physician prevention and uh, suicide prevention and physicians and and emotional support. She's on the forefront of Mm. trying to make things happen in that. And there's actually another person who was mentioned in the article as well, who created the physician suicide line just Mm. within the last two or three years. And they, and they have it fully staffed and it's all, I mean, it's, it's incredible. In fact, I, I don't use my professional Facebook and Instagram very often, but that's like the only thing that I've posted is don't forget you're not alone. Here's the phone number if you need it. Like every physician you have ever trained with or know, unless they hated you, will pick up the phone if you are having that sort of problem because we get it. We get it. And so that's my, my, did we tell why, why this topic is is important to us. Was that on camera or was that off? It was off camera. It was before we hit record. Okay. Before we hit record. So my, like we talked about my first year out of, out of residency was attending ship and I had moved across the country. So no family around, no friends around. It's really hard to get spouses jobs in the Pacific Northwest. So Lila was struggling because she like breaking into academia out here where even people in the production side can't get jobs. They all just become adjunct teachers at community colleges for cash. Well, she is a trained 
like professional community college teacher, a professor. And she came out here and there wasn't a space for her. And thank God that's gone away. She has a phenomenal job that matches her soul. It's great. But that first year was just like, what are we doing? What are mm -hmm. we doing here? Why, why am I doing this? Is this what I trained? 10 years for. And so, like I said, I, that's how I found out a lot about these people is between that and what I didn't mention yet is the fact that two attending physicians that I trained under in my residency committed suicide, not in my residency, but in the community that my mm -hmm. residency was. It just, I think there was that double whammy of like, oh my God, is this everything that there is to my job? Is this what I have to look forward for 30 years? And then also holy crap, it's not doing good things for these people that I respected. What, what do I expect it to do for me? And so reading this article, I was just like, oh, this is spot on in a lot of ways. But I forgot where I was going with all that. But basically, oh, yeah. Paula Weibel is really well known in this space. And there are physicians, mental health and physicians wellness conferences where people and, and really they're new, they're new in the past five, 10 years, these, the development of these physician wellness conferences, and they're phenomenal. That being said, they all go back to mindfulness practices and gratitude right. practices. Right. And, and of course right. they, there is the other half of them that's doing this push towards better workplace, but how do you convince a for-profit organization that's independent, mm -hmm. that has minimal oversight from any government body? And I mean, even the oversight that it does have is by government that gets profit off of some of the healthcare things. So right. I don't know. It's just, it's a well, hard situation to fix. It is a hard situation. And perhaps I still maintain too much optimism and too little cynicism, but I push back continually, not on what you're saying, Michelle, I'm agreeing a thousand percent, but it's on others. And I just say that, you know, the solution is it's for physicians to lean in. Because I think that the reason why we're dealing with so much medicine's unique, right? Like, I think that for politicians, legislators, lawyers, and stuff like that, a lot of your work, I mean, you're just number one, the like area seems saturated. There's like so many people and they can do it. And like, it takes all comers. And, but at the same time, like, the only people that can do the job for our is us. Mm -hmm. like, you, you, like you can't, you can't. And I know that there's, and I do not besmirch our advanced practice pr practitioners, but like there's, they can't, they see half of what we see. It's not the same. They have half the train. It's not the same. A nurse can't do it. And that's the whole point of training and dedicating yourself for so long and so on. And so that's unique though, because if you have the power to do that, it's an enormous amount of leverage on a system yet you don't see it happen very often because largely physicians have vacated those positions because you're having to see all the patients or that's what you're told. But mm -hmm. I constantly push back on, and I think the thing that always drew me to you, Michelle, amongst many things, but that I could always respect was that you recognize that it's not enough to just be a good doctor, but you have to be so much more. And you got to do what you love and, and, and make that align, right? Like you're saying, you can't just like will yourself into being an educator. There's people who are just good at it and not. But there's so much work to be done that's beyond just seeing patients. And that is working in public health, working in legislation, working in underserved communities, working on problems in your institution, in your practice, being on the practice committee. It's like making that sausage and like learning how to do it so that when other people who have 
no idea what your job is are trying to legislate your job, you're like, actually, that's not going to work now. The caveat to this is that physicians had that for a very long time and they kind of screwed it up because the for-profit system twists you, right? Because if you can legislate so that you can make $4,000 on a cataract surgery that takes 20 minutes to do, well, guess what? A lot of people are getting their cataracts out early. Like no surprise. And I'm picking on ophthalmologists, but apply it to anything. Cardiologists with their catheterizations, pulmonologists with their bronchoscopy, whatever it is, right? Oh, I'm going to take the appendix out while I'm doing the gallbladder. Cause you know, just in case like, and so physicians were bad actors in that instance, but to just retreat from all that stuff has only magnified these things because mm -hmm. now you're having people who are treating that medicine as like a corporation and who makes the widgets? the doctors. And so that makes all this money. And of course, they're going to say like, well, I want you to make more widgets, like you really need to be working on that. And, and then you find yourself just grinding away. And you're like, I can't even do anything. And I hate this system now. And, and it's like, why is this system? I hate this. It's all this terrible. So it's like lean in, man, because you have so much leverage. It's unlike so many other professions. And doctors aren't going to go on strike. I don't think that's even like what would make sense but they have to like put their feet down and be like, I'm not gonna do this, I can't do this, you know? Yeah, so I'm in a union state, a very, very strong union state. And and I'll tell you what, working in a small mill town, they mm -hmm. freaking need those unions because those mills mm -hmm. will eat people alive. Those mm -hmm. logging companies, I mean, mm -hmm. they don't, I mean, anyways, yeah. my point being, it's yeah. important. And I'll tell you, the, the longer I'm here, the more I'm like, why don't we have a union? Because it's not just about that threat of striking, right? It's that organized, powerful discussion group, right? Yeah. Like we need a physician lobbying body that isn't the American Board of Family Medicine that yeah. charges $10,000 over every three years for you to be a part or whatever. I mean, not calling out ABFM and it's not 10 No, but I know what you mean. It's like, where's my, <laughs> my where's practice doesn't now? make that, you know, I can't pay that. No, yeah. I'm just kidding. But you know, the same thing, it's the reason why people don't trust things with Susan G. Coleman, breast cancer, after you hear about all the money they spend on advertising instead of lobbying for mm -hmm. better services. I mean, it's the mm -hmm. same for our organizations, right? The They pay themselves way more than their, their lobbying. But mm -hmm. I don't know, it's because it's hard because what would you do if you were in a lobby? All the physicians across the country, guess what? You'd have to make regional groups. And if you're making regional groups, you might as well divide by specialty. And if you're dividing by specialty, right. you might as well join right. the well, right. AAFD or all whatever. All politics is local, right? Yeah. Infamous saying, all politics is local. And I think that that is the key because I think that most people want to boil down what we're talking about into, we just need a czar. We just need a president. We just need some figurehead that represents physicians as a whole and can act on behalf. And it's like, that's what? No, that doesn't even yeah. make any sense. You need, I mean, like you said, Trey, I don't you know. know what you do and you don't know what I do. And right. we're both doctors. <laughs> right. It's like you, you need work. people who can effectively manage and lead your tribe's mission without becoming tribal. That's the hard part. You got to lead together, but you can't become tribal because then you bicker and yeah. nothing gets done. And you have to have a person, this goes back to what we were saying, you have to have a person who recognizes the need for humility and being a good leader and not just has the charisma to convince people that they can do it. And right. that's where you run into problems. Yeah. Sociopaths are great at convincing <laughs> you to be awesome.
they're still sociopaths. <laughs> Not that doctors are sociopaths. I'm just saying, like, oh no, I, you know, I, I, the no. more I see national politics or local politics, the more I'm like, huh. You just have to like speak really nicely and be relatively good looking and yes. white, and boom, yes. you're in. Like, yeah. well, this is this is a perfect place for us to formally cut since we're 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 broadening the That's the. <laughs> It's fantastic. We are 48 minutes uh, minutes in. Uh, Michelle, it is always a sincere pleasure. Trey and I just have so much fun chatting with you. We end up going places we never thought we'd go. I was going to uh, say, we still didn't talk about physician wellness. <laughs> that's okay. It gives us all the reason in the world to have you back on for a third time. We covered as much as we were going to cover uh, and the time we had allotted for for today, and and uh, I made a commitment to both of you to to get you out of here at a, at a decent time. But sincerely, Michelle, it was wonderful to have you on again. That's great. And that's a wrap for us today. Uh, special thanks again to Dr. McClellan for joining us for the discussion. As always, you can find out more about what Trey and I are up to at translateyourdoctor.com, and you can email us always at translateyourdoctor at gmail.com. We look forward to catching up with you next week. Have a good one.